We are in the book of Philippians, and timely, timely message. We're actually going to go through Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through Philippians 2, verse 11, Lord willing. There's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm just going to do sort of a superficial covering of this, but it's really apropos because we are entering into the Christmas season, as I said. And how many of you love Christmas? I mean, honestly. Now, we have a a Friday morning men's group that reads through books. And one of the books that we read through and discussed was Surprised by Hope. And in this book, it points out the very true fact that really Easter in the Christmas calendar is a much more important holiday than Christmas. I mean, honestly, Without Easter, Christmas is just another birth of an impoverished Jewish baby. But with Easter and the resurrection, everything changes. So Easter's really sort of the big holiday. But we don't spend the entire month of March and April celebrating Easter like we do Christmas, which is sort of not how it should be. Nonetheless, I love Christmas. It starts in childhood. So many of us are, are blessed by the Christmas season. And in the passage this morning, Paul talks about the incarnation, the powerful reality of the incarnation of God, the Creator. And the impact that that incarnation should subsequently have on each one of our lives. If we as Christians are not impacted by the love of a God who would create us, and when we had turned away from him, become like us and serve us and die for us, if we're not impacted by that, something's wrong. I mean, it's powerful. And that's really what this passage this morning is going to talk to us about. Paul says in verse 27, whatever happens. Now, that is sort of a transitional phrase, whatever happens, based upon what he's been talking about before. And really, uh, verse 21 is sort of the highlight of the, the section that he has just been telling the Philippians about. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So, so literally, for us as Christians, regardless of whatever happens in our lives, No matter how bad things might get, ultimately, our situation improves. Even if we are killed for the cause of Christ, which the reality is, is none of us are likely to die for our witness for Christ. But even were we to do that, our situation would improve. Right now, we get to live for Christ. We get to serve the kingdom of God. We get to store up in our heavenly account good works that God has created beforehand that we should walk in. But if we die, either in the witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ or just in the ordinary passing of life, we translate into the very presence of God. Now, most of us fear death to some degree, even as Christians. Even as Christians, if we're honest, the idea of death is somewhat frightening. It's at least unsettling. It's a real test of our faith, isn't it? To to come to that point 
where the physical life departs from us and we have to confront the reality of our faith. Do we believe in a God who is unseen? I remember counseling with a woman who was on her deathbed and I was sharing with her that when she died, the very first thing she would see would be angels that would carry her into the presence of Christ. Not based on anything I know. That's based on the scriptures and, the, and, and what Jesus uh, talked about in Luke chapter 16. So Paul says for us to live as Christ, to die is gain. So whatever happens in your life, whatever your circumstances are, whatever your situation becomes, whatever happens while you are here, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is going to be a theme that Paul is beginning to develop, and he will develop more fully in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. That idea of working together in unity for the faith of the gospel. There's an expectation, Paul says, that our lives will look different, that we will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, individually, but also corporately, striving together as one in the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, because there will be opposition. I recall one of the very first things that happened to me as a Christian. I was living with three other guys. And in fairness to them, we did not live anywhere close to what would be considered a religious or a righteous life. But when I got saved, I began to witness to them. When they were getting high, I would begin to share Jesus Christ with them. And it didn't take very long for that situation not to work out well as you might imagine. Ultimately, they, they said, you've got to leave. This is not okay. We don't want you to live here anymore. That's what happens when you start to share your faith, when, when you, you're changed and light invades darkness. Darkness doesn't like it. It removes darkness, and so dark and darkness opposes it. But Paul says that's an evidence of the, the destruction that those in darkness will experience, but also an evidence of the reality of your salvation that you are willing to witness and to testify to what has happened in your life. It's a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. Now listen to this. For it has been granted to you that on behalf of Christ, you will not only be able to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That's one that we skip over a lot but I want to read it again. It's been granted us to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his resurrection. I like that part. That sounds pretty good to me. But then he says, but also it's been granted to you to suffer for him. Patrick, would you put up 1 Peter chapter 4? Listen to what Peter says about our suffering. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, it's not unusual when you as a Christian go through tribulation, go through difficult circumstances. But rejoice 
that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ or if you're asked to move out of your residence, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So, Peter says in alignment with what Paul is saying that as a Christian, it should not surprise us when we suffer, when people reject our message, when they oppose what we are trying to convey to them. Again, darkness resists the light. Satan, our enemy, resists the message that we have to share with a lost and a dying world. So we will suffer. Now this passage here from verse 27 through verse 30 really sets the foundation for what Paul wants to talk about in chapter 2. He's saying that as a Christian, you've got to prove it. You've got to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. There's got to be proof in your life. But along with that proof, you are given the privilege of suffering for him. Again, I I can't emphasize enough that we've got to embrace that. That passage we just read out of Peter. And there's so many other in the New Testament that talk about embracing the suffering for the cause of Christ. It's a good thing. But on top of that, in verse 30, Paul says, you've seen the struggle I had. And now here that I still have. The Philippians, when they were introduced to Paul, were introduced to him because he suffered for the exorcism of a slave girl who was possessed by a demonic force. He cast that demon out. Paul subsequently was thrown into the prison there at Philippi and ultimately was rescued by God through an earthquake. They knew about Paul's suffering. And they hear that Paul now is imprisoned by uh, Caesar. He's on his way to Rome. Probably at this point in time in Rome, in chains. So they understand that Paul has experienced suffering. He's continuing to experience suffering. There is a process that he is going through that Paul says they also will experience. And this is the foundation, that proof, that privilege, that process that we go through as Christians in representing Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. That all to set up what we are going to read about in the first 11 verses in chapter 2. Now, the Philippian epistle and the Philippian church is somewhat unique. First, there's no overt doctrinal corrections that are going on in this epistle. Most of the New Testament is written to correct error or problems that exist in the church. Sometimes you'll hear churches say today 
oh, we should go back to being a New Testament church. <laughs> well, the reality is the New Testament church was all screwed up. I mean, they were coming out of a variety of different religious backgrounds. There was a lot of oppression that occurred in the church. They were very uh, willing to mix and to blend Christian doctrine with pagan doctrine. And so most of the New Testament is written to correct error. But in the Philippian epistle, that's not really happening. There's no error to correct. But uniquely, or perhaps not so uniquely, in the Philippian church, it was very diverse. Very diverse. I pointed out a few weeks ago how Lydia, the rich seller of purple, was there in Philippi, Paul's first convert. So you had this wealthy woman. And then the next convert was this poor slave girl who was demon-possessed. And then the third convert was this middle-class Roman citizen who works in the jail. And so you have this very diverse group of people coming in to make up the Philippian church. Again, not unlike our church here. If we were to, one by one, go through the congregation today, we would hear a vast array of backgrounds, perspectives, points of view, economic status. And yet, here we are, all gathered together to worship the one and true living God. In the Philippian church, there was a growth of division that was occurring. Paul, in chapter 4, writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord and in his way. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of one in the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, probably the pastor of the Philippian church, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of Christ along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's a, a, a growing division that exists within the Philippian church. Euodia and Syntyche, these two women who have been very prominent in the conveyance of the message of the gospel, have worked right alongside the apostle. They are beginning to divide. A schism is growing in the church. And Paul wants to arrest that. He wants to make sure that this schism does not become a division which ultimately fractures and destroys the work of God there in Philippi. So Paul, in chapter 2, is calling the Philippians to understand where they came from. Listen to this. Therefore, based on that foundation of proof, of privilege, and of process, Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So the word if, Paul is not by using that term, suggesting that the Philippians don't have this. It's very much like what happened in the wilderness when Jesus was confronted by Satan. And Satan said, if you're the son of God, then make these stones turn into bread. Now Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. He wasn't suggesting if you're the Son of God. It's really more of a, a sense 
you are the Son of God. Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. It's very much the same here. Paul is saying, since you have these things in your possession as Christians, you are a part of the body of Christ, united one with another, and you have received his love. You all share with the Holy Spirit and as a temple of the Holy Spirit, possess the the fruit of that Spirit. You all have been transformed. You're new creatures in Christ, and thus you have tenderness and compassion that, that marks your lives. And because of that, there's this joy. And remember what I said joy was? Joy is a deep and abiding awareness of your connectedness with God. And as a result of that joy, you experience exultant gladness and euphoric peace. That's what you you, you experience. Paul says, because you have all of these things in Christ, because you have experienced these things as a Christian, you need to be of the same love, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Now, verse 3 and 4, verse 3 and 4, uh, I'll go ahead and read 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This has really been uh, a life marriage verse for Christy and me. I cannot tell you how many times we have looked at each other and we have quoted Philippians 2, 3, and 4, when we have gone through difficult things when we have not been aligned, when we have been at odds with one another. Any other married couples ever experience that? So we remind ourselves of this. We quote it to one another. And by and large, the Holy Spirit helps us and we get over whatever challenge we have. Every now and then, I have an epic fail, but... Mostly, when we go to this and remind ourselves that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we are to value others better than ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Patrick, would you put up Matthew chapter 7? Because sometimes people will look at this and they'll say, "Ah, you know, I really have more information about this subject than someone else has. And that's why my position should be the one that is accepted or the one that is honored. Listen to what Jesus said. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here it is. When we're dealing with one another, this is really Christian Relationship 101. When we're dealing with one another, we ought to always initiate whatever engagement we're having with that other person from the perspective that is revealed here in verse 3 and 4. Considering others as better than ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Why? Because the reality is we have our own stuff that we are dealing with, just as Jesus pointed out. 
We are not in a position to lord it over anybody. Now, has this ever happened to you? Where you think you have all the information necessary to make a particular decision, and you go ahead, you, you forge ahead, you make the decision, and then subsequently you realize, or it becomes known to you, that you really didn't know everything you needed to know. That you were not really all wise. It happens a lot. And that's the point Jesus is making, and that's the point Paul is making here. In our relationships with one another, we need to start with the assumption that the other person is in a position superior to us, that we need to look after their interests and not our own. We've got our own stuff to deal with. We need to work humbly with one another, respecting one another, lifting up one another when we come together. Not selfish ambition, not vain conceit, not assuming that we have all the information or that we are superior, but really in a, in a position of humility, recognizing that the other's interests take precedence over our own. Now, if we just stop there, you could argue the point and say, well, I don't like that philosophy. I'm not sure it makes sense. I think that there's a lot of reason why the knowledge I have, the experience I have in the church should receive its due notice. So Paul, anticipating that, begins to talk about our target in verse 5. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So here's the target. Our target, our focus, is to develop the mind of Christ in our relationships with one another. How did Jesus look at his relationships with human beings? Now, this is the creator God, mind you. This is God in the flesh. How did Jesus view relationships? Paul tells us. Who, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So in other words, though he had the preeminence, though he was God by very nature, he had no beginning, he has no end, by very nature God, he did not hold on to that position. He did not take that position and lord it over humanity but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So he literally emptied himself of his prerogative as God, not his nature as God, but his prerogative as God. And he took on the role of a servant in human form. He became like us. This is again Christmas. This is what we're celebrating this month, the incarnation of God in the flesh. So though he was God, he didn't hold on to that prerogative. He emptied himself of that prerogative, and he became a servant. Now, he could have come into the world. He could have taken on human form and been the king of the world and been absolutely appropriate in doing so. But he didn't do that, did he? How did he enter the world? 
the child of a virgin, probably 14, 15 years old, born in a manger without a home. That's how he entered the world. And he lived a life of a servant. And being, a found, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he was selfless. He emptied himself of all of his prerogatives as God. He took upon himself the role of a servant, and ultimately he sacrificed himself. Why? To build relationship with humanity. Now, if Jesus Christ has that mindset, if our Lord and Creator takes that mind, ought we not to do the same? You know, there's a story that's told of Booker T. Washington, who was a leader in the Jim Crow South of the African-American people. And he was the dean of the Tuskegee Institute, which was an institute that educated young black men and women. And he was a prominent person. He had access to the presidency. He was a very intelligent man. He was born into slavery, but he had educated, he had ascended to a position of prominence, and he was in leadership in, in the nation, had the ear of the president. And the story is told of Booker T. Washington walking through the streets of Atlanta. And a woman, a wealthy woman, a wealthy white woman, saw him, not knowing who he was, asked him if he'd like to make some extra money. She said, I have some wood. I need chalk. Would you come and chop my wood? That was the assumption back around the turn of the century in Jim Crow South. He's a black man. He can come and chop her wood. And Washington said, gladly, I'll come and chop your wood. And he came and he chopped her wood. He stacked it. He put it where she wanted it, never asserting his position, never dropping his name with her. He just did what she was asked, or what he was asked. Until he was seen by a young girl in the home who recognized him, understood who he was. And she told her mother, this is Booker T. Washington. And the woman, very, very embarrassed, came to Washington and apologized. And he said, I needed the exercise. It was fine. I have no problem doing what I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. And the woman, recognizing, witnessing the humility of Booker T. Washington, subsequently made a large donation to the Tuskegee Institute. Now, he could have asserted his position right away. He said, don't you know who I am? I'm Booker T. Washington. I have the president's ear. I'm a leader in the, the, the South among black African-American men and women. But he didn't. He just did what he was asked gladly and didn't assert anything. And as a result, was blessed. That's the point being made here. When people ask us to serve, we should just serve. You know, it's interesting Patrick, would you put up uh, Luke chapter 17? No, we're going to skip, sorry. Yeah. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. 
We have only done our duty. Now, <laughs> sometimes in the church, this is what I've witnessed and this is what I've experienced myself. We step into positions of servanthood and we're serving others, but really what we're looking for is a, an attaboy, a pat on the back. Wow, isn't that great? So-and-so is out there doing this for others. and Oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm just a servant. It's that sort of attitude that I want my service, I want my servanthood to be noticed. Jesus says when we serve in the kingdom of God, we've only done our duty. So here, the mindset of Christ is being conveyed. Selflessness, servanthood, sacrificial living. And you say to yourself, well, that's not going to bring people into the church. We need a, a snazzier slogan. We, we can't put out their selfless, sacrificial servanthood. That's just not going to bring the people in. But the reality is that's the mindset of Christ. That is what Paul is pointing out here. And as a result of this mindset, as a result of the selfless, servant, sacrificing lifestyle, God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what happens in the economy of God. When we empty ourselves of our prerogative, and some of you in this building today have prerogative that you could assert. You are people of prominence. But when we empty ourselves of our prerogative and we take on a role of a servant, not looking for attaboys or congratulations, but just doing what we're doing because it is the mind of Christ, and when we sacrifice our needs, when we put someone else's needs in advance of our own, in the economy of God, at the proper time, God will raise us up. Patrick, would you put up James chapter 4, please? This is James chapter 4. And if there is one danger that exists in the church to create the church, a situation where the church could crumble and fall apart, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not persecution. It's not opposition from the lost. It's pride and it is uh, self that causes that in the church. Listen to what James says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of the God, an enemy of God. In the world, there is self. In the world, there is prestige. In the world, there is power. If those are the things you're seeking after, James says, you may be an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. And this is why God, or excuse me, Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Again, not a passage that you probably are going to uh, win friends and influence people with. But it's true. It's true. Jim Elliott was uh, a missionary to, to the Hurani Indians in South America. And he and his companions were reaching out to the Hurani, a remote tribe down there. And they had been flying in their plane. Nate Saint was the pilot. They had been flying over there and sort of scoping out the, the land, trying to figure out where the Hurani were. They finally got situated on the ground, and they began to reach out to the Hurani. They befriended one Hurani native and gave him gifts and communicated to him what their intentions were so that they could have access into the tribe. Now, this Indian went back to his tribe in receipt of the gifts that Jim Elliott and his friends had given, but he lied to the tribe about the intent that Elliott had, that their intent was good to share love to share Jesus Christ. And so a war party came out ultimately and killed Elliot and his companions. And Elliot and his companions did not fight back. They could have, but they chose not to. And they died as martyrs in mission to Hurani. Interestingly, subsequently, the Indian who went back and had lied to the tribe became a Christian because there were other missionaries who followed after Eliot. Eliot said, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to take a hold of that which he can never lose. That's what this passage is all about. Finding joy in humility. Submitting unto God and to one another. Considering each other as better than ourselves putting ourselves in a position of selfless, sacrificial servanthood. And at the proper time, again, in the economy of God, God will take notice and he will raise you up. Now, whatever that raising up means, it doesn't look the same for, for each one of us. But at the proper time, God will acknowledge you. God will lift you up when you humble yourself in his sight. It's a powerful, powerful passage, and we're entering into the season where it is demonstrated in the most uh, tangible way. Again, God becoming a human.
So here's my challenge to each one of us, myself included. Some of you, like me, have had epic fails when it comes to living humbly. My challenge to us is to target the mind of Christ. To begin to think about ourselves and to align our lives in accordance with the mind of Jesus Christ. Patrick, would you put up Matthew chapter 11? Jesus tells us himself what his mindset is. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, what is the mind of Christ? Humble heart, gentle yoke. Now churches are well known, and I'm sorry I'm going a little bit long here, but churches are well known for doing exactly the opposite of this. Isn't it odd that churches are sometimes known for hypocrisy, known for pride, known for posturing themselves to be seen when our Lord and Master says, I am humble of heart, I am gentle, and my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's target the mind of Christ this Christmas season. Let's focus ourselves on renewing our minds and becoming humble servants in the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ who became like us, who lived the life of a servant and ultimately died upon a Roman cross on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would drive that message home to each one of us and that this Christmas season would be a transformational one, that this Christmas season, it wouldn't be so much about the gifts and the glitter, but it would really be about the glory of God. Lord, I pray for every soul who is struggling moving into this Christmas season. Sometimes Christmas... Christmas can be a very difficult time, a very lonely time, a very challenging time for people. I pray for those souls and saints who are struggling this Christmas season with loneliness, with hardships and difficulties. Lord, meet them where they are at and provide for their needs in Christ Jesus. We give you the glory and praise and thanks. Amen.